Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let's pray. Holy God, muddy our hearing that we might see the evidence of your grace at work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. John is the gospel of long conversations. Chapter 9 is a long chapter, but it's different. Chapter 9 isn't one long conversation, but a series of conversations, all having to do with a man born blind. We're not given the man's name, but because it would be tiresome for me to keep saying and for you to keep hearing the man born blind from birth or man blind from birth, I'm going to use the name that tradition has assigned him, Celadonius. Anyway, in chapter 9, you hear conversations where people talk about Celadonius, disciples, neighbors, and conversations with Celadonius, Jesus in a kind way, Pharisees in an interrogating way. Well, let's listen in, and let's listen for God's voice. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he said this, he spat on the ground, he made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back, able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is not this the man who used to sit and beg? And some were saying, it is he. Others were saying, no, but it's someone like him. He kept saying, I am he. But they kept asking him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And then I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And then the Pharisees also began to ask how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I wash. Now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? 
sins, and they were divided. So they again said to the blind man, what do you say about him? It was your eyes that were opened. He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how it is that he now sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. I mean, ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, I do not know whether he's a sinner. One thing I do know, I was born blind and now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> then they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Here's an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born or a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you're born entirely from sins. Are you trying to teach us? And they drove him out. Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is it, sir? Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard this and said to him, surely we are not blind, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would not have sinned. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. The word of the Lord. You see what I mean? A chapter of conversations. The conversations begin with a question, and notice that the question is not, why or was this man blind from birth? That wasn't the question. Everyone knows that already. Celadonius probably lived outside the walls of Jerusalem all his life, and his neighbors are used to seeing him not see them. His situation is so well known, even the disciples know that he has been blind since birth. No, how long he has been blind is not the conversation starter here. 
What is a conversation starter is to ask the kind of question his parents probably asked when Celadonius was born. Why? And what has he done to deserve this? He's just a baby. What have we done to deserve this? And these questions raise issues, and we love to debate issues, don't we? And the number one issue here seems to be responsibility. Who caused this? A tower crumbles and kills everybody in it, and Jesus is asked by his disciples if the people who were killed did anything wrong. Maui is devastated by fire, and we know that at least 93 people have been killed. And if you have a news feed on your phone, you've already seen the string of headlines asking who is responsible. Now, there's always a right and a left to these debates. There's always disagreement. There are different perspectives. I don't know which disciples lean left and which disciples lean right. I do know that if anyone is born not able to see, that is a problem for those who lean left. Because as Jonathan Haidt points out, the number one moral issue for liberals is fairness. If everyone is equal in God's eyes, everyone should have an equal chance at life. Everyone should have equal access, be given the same opportunities, be treated the same way. So it's a real theological issue if someone is born with an unfair disability or disadvantage in life. What does that say about us if we don't fix it? And what does that say about God who caused it? And that the man is born blind is a problem for those who lean right because for the conservatives of Jesus' day, there is a right way and there is a wrong way. Those who live the right way deserve the blessings they earn. And those who live the wrong way deserve their disadvantages. And what looks unfair, that some have more blessings than others, is simply evidence of the difference hard work and right living can make. So there has to be an explanation for this man's disadvantage, a spin that will justify their view of how life is supposed to work. Scripture does say, after all, that the sins of a generation will be passed on like an inheritance to future generations. So a sin audit needs to be done. If Celadonius is blind, something has to be wrong with him or because of something his parents did. Now, asking if blame or responsibility should be placed on Celadonius or his parents sounds silly the way I just said it. Look how we talk today about the problems, the systemic generational problems of poverty, sexism, racism, and education. We know that children can be born into lives that will be easy or hard based on circumstances that are not of their choosing. So we have our own ways of asking if their difficulties are their problems they need to work through or problems that have come of generational injustice that we need to address. That's the kind of debate the disciples are having. Important questions, important issues, different perspectives. And Jesus engages. He answers their question. He discusses the issue. <laughs> but Jesus sees Celadonius. While the issues of the border and of refugees are debated, important debates, Jesus sees the migrant and the refugee. He might even learn their names. While gun violence is debated, Jesus sees the one who is shot and Jesus sees the shooter. While education is debated, Jesus sees the boy who comes hungry to school every day. Jesus sees the girl who wants to hurt herself because how she has been shamed online. 
So we hear this debate going among the disciples and neighbors is important. We see that Celadonius has begged every day. And with the things are, is that the only way that he can survive? Or maybe he should not be using his being blind to manipulate others. Maybe there's something he can do to help himself. And where's his family? Isn't it their responsibility? There's lots to learn. There's lots to discuss. But Jesus sees Celadonius and goes to him. Let's move past the disciples and neighbors who talk about Celadonius to the Pharisees who talk to Celadonius, or rather at Celadonius. They come across pretty callous, don't they? But let's be careful not to make caricatures of them. First of all, not all Pharisees of Jesus' day are as legalistic or graceless as these. You know how it is. It's always the extremists that give a group a bad name. I'm a preacher. I lead a congregation. Believe me, I am embarrassed by so many who speak for the church these days. I'm not just talking about those who speak for churches that are not of my tradition. I'm talking about some Presbyterians. Some of the things I hear said I don't even recognize as biblical. And I bet some of you are embarrassed by some of those who speak on behalf of your groups, your political party. Or those of you who are on social media, have you ever read posts by people who you agree with, but who are so extreme, so rude, so obnoxious, it just makes you want to switch sides? These Pharisees in our passage, they're extreme. They're like a dog with a bone or a tickle in the throat when you're in worship. They won't give up. Jesus has to be wrong. And they have to be right, no in-between. Celadonius was blind at birth, and now he can see. That's not supposed to happen. As far as anyone knows, that has never happened. As far as anyone can see, that never will happen. The Pharisees need to know why this has happened, because it doesn't fit their views, if it even happened at all. How they go about finding explanations is a classic example of confirmation bias, accepting only what supports what they already believe. Choosing a side, taking a stand, making a commitment, and then using what they know as the means by which to judge whether evidence is true or false. They ask Celadonius questions and notice they only accept the answers that they want to hear. How'd this happen? Mud, spit, dirt, and a man who made it happen? The answer won't fit. It won't do. When Celadonius offers a suggestion that uh, Jesus is a prophet, that won't do either. That won't do because the Pharisees already know that whatever Jesus did, he did it on the Sabbath. And they have a stand about such things. They have a position about such things. Unless there is a life-threatening problem, or unless there's going to be some kind of economic impact, like your donkey falling in a ditch, no work should be done. Whatever Jesus did should wait until Monday. I know that their Sabbath wasn't Sunday, but let's not get bogged down in details. What is important? is that if they have decreed that work is not to be done on the Sabbath and work is done on the Sabbath, then their authority is being challenged to declare what is right and wrong. And clearly, 
Jesus opposes their stand on the Sabbath. A prophet? A prophet? Are you saying that Jesus is of God? A man of God wouldn't violate the Sabbath. In their case of confirmation bias, they track down his parents and they interrogate the parents. Poor parents. You know how it is when someone gets in your grill, when you're in the company of one of those who can't let you go and you can't get out of the conversation unless you surrender your view. That's what the parents find themselves in and their consequences here. It could get out in the community. They could be thrown out of the synagogue. You can hear the squirm in their answers. Was your son born blind? Yes, he was. We were there. How did it happen that he was healed? We don't know. We weren't there. It's a mystery to us, too. Go ask him. He's an adult. He can speak for himself. Dog with a bone, tickle in the throat. These guys won't let go, and that's just exactly what they do. They go back and interrogate Celadonius. They ask him the exact same question again, demanding that he change his answer so that their authority is honored, their stand holds, and their version of what happened can be sustained. And it doesn't go well. Celadonius has something his intimidated parents don't have, a backbone. Now, wait a minute. George, that's not nice, and it wasn't fair. You know why? Because you know me, <laughs> or many of you know me anyway. You know I'm not a big advocate for engaging zealots in their zeal or extremists in their extreme or hotheads in their heat. And the way this conversation pretty much supports my strategy. Celadonius makes a reasonable point that Jesus did a godly thing and he ought to get some credit for doing so. And they answer not with a response to that. They answer with a personal attack. We know Moses. You don't. So don't try to teach us anything. We're right and you're nothing but a sinner. So keep your opinions about God to yourself. Oh, and by the way, get out. You know, like talking about the issues, taking stands on them is something that we all do. But what is it about these Pharisees, about where they are standing, that doesn't let them see that maybe it's a good thing that a man born blind can now see? How do we get to that place where we so quickly dismiss the credibility and dismiss the evidence of those who are not standing precisely where we are? What keeps these Pharisees from celebrating something that has to be of God just because it took place on God's day? Now look who's spinning, the Pharisees might say. I mean, look at yourself, George. Look whose articles, whose call for discipleship, whose sermons encourage folks to set Sunday aside and come back to church to be together I mean, you've given the theological reasons. A day is to be set aside for worship. The justice reasons, people need a day off. They need time off. The mindfulness reasons, we need to reset in life. The psychological reasons, we need to have a day that's about being, not doing. Wow, are those Pharisees irritating. Especially when now I'm hearing things that I might have said. That agrees with them. And that's why I want to walk away from the conversation 
which is easy to do because I have defined them and this allows me to put them in boxes and walk away from them because they are nothing but confirmation bias-seeking, zero-sum arguing, virtue-signaling, ad hominem attacking Pharisees. Get out. But that's what the Pharisees did to Jesus, isn't it? Jesus was just as irritating to them. And because of what Jesus was saying, they put him in a box, condemned him, and set him aside. And let's admit it, Jesus doesn't cooperate in this entire passage. It would be nice if someone would ask the same question over and over again. What about Celadonius? And well, I say that would be nice, but that's the irritating thing about him. If the disciples want to talk about cause and effect, what is fair and who is responsible, and the neighbors want to talk about what happened and why it happened on the Sabbath, and if the Pharisees argue about who has the authority to heal someone only God can heal, and who has the authority to heal someone on the Sabbath, Jesus <laughs> sees Celadonius. I mean, issues are important to discuss. Stands sometimes need to be taken, but the one who raised the issues and calls stands to be taken, the one who others talk about and others talk at, Jesus deals with him. Disciples have questions. Neighbors are freaked out. The Pharisees get engaged. Passion is high. Arguments are had. Stands are taken. Who knows? The Pharisees might have written a position paper or two. But Jesus sees this man who is blind and helps him. From what I know of my predecessors and certainly what I know of the congregation that I've inherited and now serve, here's something I value about this congregation. We are a church that highly values education and reflection. I love that. We have lively conversations about issues here. That's wonderful because as books like Toxic Charity point out, there's often great harm done in trying to do good in an ignorant way. Studying about issues, talking about issues, that's important. But I do think that this church has, for the most part, realized that what is of utmost important is not that we get to a before place. We don't insist on getting to a place where we all agree that that's what we have to do before we do anything. We don't have to all agree. We don't insist on getting to a place where we can all agree enough to, to take a stand. What we do is while we're talking about it and while we're debating it is, is we actually try to do something about it. Prisons. We don't all agree on policing and incarceration, but I thank God for the prison ministry for which Gene Edmonds was a chaplain and which we support still, and for Fred Genheimer's work in helping inmates stay in touch with their loved ones to remind them why they should not only want to leave prison, but stay out of prison, and for the program that Jen Brothers helped start and Cynthia Lawrence has been a part of, where recently released inmates learn skills, get mentoring that help them get jobs and provide for themselves. We've helped. So much more needs to be understood and done, but praise God for that which we've been able to do to help some inmates, all of whom have names and real needs. Immigration. 
Boy, have there been debates about immigration and undocumented workers and whether or not Syrian war refugees should be allowed to enter this country. That was a couple of years ago. We haven't figured out those issues. People take different stands. But isn't it wonderful that while those debates go on, we've been able to help immigrants who have been brought to Roanoke or housed at Massanetta, undocumented workers in Florida and Syrian war refugees through a special offering we made, all of whom have names and real needs. Education. We debate education all the time, public versus private. What about the liberal arts? Are we losing it? Teacher pay, curriculum, funding, standards of learning. Do we teach to the test? These are important conversations. I'm married to a teacher. These are important conversations. But meanwhile, Morningside, school, we can do something. And we're going to do something right now. We're taking up an offering. I had several more examples, but I don't like out-preaching my welcome, and I don't like going too long. I just want to leave you with a suggestion that we continue to keep our priorities straight. How blessed we are to be a church that is not so focused on survival that there's little more we can do than just talk about issues and maybe take a stand or two. While issues are being discussed and stands being taken all around us, and even though right now in our polarized society and in the larger church, congregations seem to be more celebrated for making statements than actually addressing the issues, isn't it wonderful to remember, though, that we can see and we can do and we can... We can actually see evidence of actually going and learning some names and getting to know the situations and doing something to help. While all that is going on, maybe we can follow Jesus who engages in the conversations, but then follow him into seeing the person and seeing the need and doing something to help. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.